Please open God's holy word to the letter of 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 13 through 17. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, forgive us of our sinful fear and our sinful lack of fear. Forgive us that we fear man so much and you so little. And have mercy on us in Christ to embolden us by your truth and your word. And to paradoxically find peace in fearing you, and freedom, in revering you, and not man. In the strong name of Jesus, I pray this. Amen. First Peter is a letter that's filled with suffering and hope. You don't have to wade deep into the letter to get that. It's present in the very way that he addresses the parties he's writing this letter to as elect exiles. That they are exiles speaks to their suffering, and that they are elect speaks to their hope, their joy. They are elect exiles. They are pilgrim exiles. They walk a road home. They walk this road of suffering. There's the sorrow, but they are walking home. There's the joy. They are walking a temporary road of suffering to an imperishable inheritance. We are pilgrims tracing the steps of our Lord. He made a way. He made this pilgrim way. It wouldn't exist. We couldn't walk it. He made it. He trod the path for us from this cursed earth to heaven. And He he made the path because He bore the thorns of sin's curse in His own flesh on the tree. And so we we can not, whenever we walk this pilgrim path, we will not suffer as Jesus did. Because He bore God's wrath for us. And yet, as we walk this pilgrim path, we will suffer as Jesus did. Because this perishing world of of darkness hated Him, and a servant is not above His master. So, the example that Jesus laid before us, and the calling of God upon us as exiles, is a calling to suffer. And to suffer for righteousness, and to suffer for righteousness righteously. That's Peter's central concern in this letter, is is that these saints who are currently enduring a trial, that 
it would be that they're suffering for righteousness' sake, and that as they endure that suffering, that they would do so righteously. This is the kind of letter that will put steel in our spine and give us grit and guts to walk this narrow and hard pilgrim path home. But if the suffering, if suffering is to be expected, what are we to make of verse 13? Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? John Piper says that this is the most perplexing verse in the book to him. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Whenever he says that's the most perplexing verse in this book, that's the kind of statement that's made by a mature believer reading the text as a humble child seeking understanding. The immature will come across a text like 2.18 telling, telling slaves to submit, and that's what really causes them to be flexed. Or uh, 3.1 telling wives to submit. Or, or whenever they read 4 and verse 12 that tells you not to be surprised by suffering. That's the kind of thing that causes them to furrow the brow. But if you're reading this text with humility and with maturity, it's a, it's a verse like this that puzzles you. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Because again and again, Peter and the Bible explain that to be an alien, to be an exile, to be a stranger, to be a pilgrim entails suffering. So what do we make of this verse? Is it speaking proverbially? Generally, it's true, if you're zealous for good, no harm will come to you. Proverbs 15.1 speaks to this in a way. A soft answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger. If you're zealous for what is good, who is there to harm you? If you obey the traffic laws, generally, generally, the patrolman won't pull you over. This is true. Whenever citizens are subject to the state, 2 and verse 13. Whenever believing slaves obey their unbelieving lords, 2.18. Whenever wives submit to their unbelieving husbands, 3.1. Whenever Christians don't return reviling for reviling, but instead bless, 3.9. Generally, no harm will come to them. The quotation of Psalm 34 just prior to this, speaking about if, if someone desires to love life and see good days, seems to strengthen this idea because whenever we examine that, that had reference both to life on this earth and in the age to come. A blessedness that's enjoyed both here and then. So is it speaking proverbially in that sense? Or is it speaking eschatologically? That in the end, ultimately, the question is, who is there to harm you? The now connects this question back, this rhetorical question connects it back to that quotation again. But the last part of that quotation that, that it most naturally grabs onto is verse 12, where you read, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those evil. So because that's so. Because the eyes of the Lord are upon you, and they're against those who do evil. Because that's the case. Who is there to harm you? Now, to catch the eschatological flavor of, of how those two things are brought together and connected, listen to a familiar passage and see how it, it rings with this same idea. Romans 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all... How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you catch the eschatological bent of this. If God is for you, ultimately in the end, He works all things together for good to those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. So who's going to harm you? See, that fits with the, the flow of the, the Peter and, and the emphasis upon our, our living hope, our imperishable inheritance, this salvation that lies out in the future and the full. So which is it? I think the clarifying word comes at the beginning of verse 14. But there's a contrast between verse 13 and verse 14. Who is there to harm you? But if you should suffer, the suffering then is harm. He asks, who is there to harm you? And then he says, but if you are harmed. So there's a qualification. If you are harmed. Verse 13 is a proverbial statement. It's a general truth. If you're zealous for what is good, who is there to harm you? But there is an eschatological qualification. Even if you are harmed. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Verse 13 is a proverbial statement. Verse 14, eschatological qualification. Persecution tries to rob the saints of life, but it only ends up putting deposits in their account. Even if you should suffer, you will be blessed. 1, 6-9, in this, Peter writes, in our living hope, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. They only harm you in such a way that they don't harm you. Ultimately, they bless you. 2, 19 through 20, for this is a gracious thing, or more literally, this is a grace. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it? When you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is grace. This is a gracious thing. This is grace in the sight of God. Or 3, 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. You are called to this that you might obtain a blessing. This harm cannot ultimately harm us. God turns their curses into blessing. As Jesus promised, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We're in union with Christ. Remember what, tried, what happened whenever they tried to stamp out his life? 
Don't be afraid whenever they try to squelch out your life. They can't take it. They can only add to it because you are in Christ, the resurrection and the life. So let's put these two things together. When you live as Peter has outlined, when you live honorably among the Gentiles, when you do good deeds, whenever you bless them, whenever you're seeking peace, generally you can expect a quiet and peaceful life. This is why passages that so often speak in this way, calling for us to do good, say something like this, Romans 12, 2. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Or 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 3. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. And yet I think you need to understand whenever Peter is saying no harm will come to you, I think he has the idea of physical harm. I think Peter is very clear that revilings, mockery, laugh, being, being, being laughed at, being ridiculed, that's, that's just expected. But it will be curbed significantly if you truly are zealous for good. If you are returning blessing for reviling to a large degree, though mocked, ridiculed, made fun of, persecuted in lesser ways, you can expect to live peaceably among the Gentiles. And whenever we do suffer, at that point, we shouldn't be surprised by it. Whenever, whenever things do get brutal and bloody, don't be surprised by it. For we know that we're exiles. We know that we are light in a world of darkness. We're no, we know that we are salt in a world that is perishing. We know that we are in a world that is at, in, in rebellion against its creator. We know that the crucifixion of our Lord was an expression of the depravity that resides in every one of our hearts. We know that it's God's common grace, His restraining grace, that prevents man who the thought and intent of his heart is only evil continually. It's only His common grace that prevents us from plunging into the abyss so that we would all be uh, murderous uh, to, to a degree. There, there would be blood all around. Murder would abound. Sons of Cain would slay the sons of Abel. But as it is, God in His common grace and His mercy restrains much evil, and we can seek to live peaceably, trusting our God and knowing whenever we do suffer, we shouldn't be surprised by this. Now, why does Peter put this before us? I think verse 14 makes it plain, the, the latter part of it. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Because you have this proverbial truth and, and this eschatological truth. If you're zealous for good, who is there to harm you? And if you are harmed, you're only blessed. Because of those truths, you, you see how this kills fear of man. They liberate you to be bold and fearless. No harm, no fear. Whenever you study these verses, you're looking closely at them. If you've read your Bible enough, 
If you're reading with a, with a, 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 a keen mind and, and you've read your Bible enough, you may recognize that sounds really familiar. And you might recognize that Peter's quoting from Isaiah 8 again. And that, this is one reason why, this is an aside, this is one reason why I'm an advocate of Bible reading and Bible study. Whenever you're, you need to do Bible study, whenever you're reading the Bible focused and, and sharp and intent on understanding a passage, you want to be doing that kind of study with as much Bible in your noggin as you possibly can to illuminate the text itself. Read the Bible with as much Bible in your noggin as you can. Do Bible reading to serve Bible study. So Peter's prepared you for this. He's already quoted in chapter 2 and verse 8. He quoted about Christ being the stone that the builders, uh, that, that is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So he's already quoted from this very same passage. You're prepared, you're alert to Isaiah 8. And he quotes from it again here. But you might miss that he is quoting from Isaiah 8 because of the way many translations obscure the, the Greek text. Fear is mentioned twice. Whenever he says, have no fear of them, there's another fear in there that's missing. And so the Christian standard has, do not fear what they fear, nor be intimidated. The New American standard has, do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. The King James has, do not be afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. So now listen to Isaiah 8 and see if you catch it better. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But Yahweh of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. So the question is, whenever we come to Isaiah 8, and we see that's being quoted here, and we're reading, do not fear their fear. The question is, what's the, what's the better translation or interpretation here? Should it be, do not fear their terror or do not fear their fear? Do not fear their terror seems more true to the immediate context. Don't fear the suffering and harm that man can inflict on you. That seems to be what fits here. Do not fear their fear is more faithful to Isaiah 8 and what's expressed there. Which is it? Well, I don't think we need to change fear to terror. Or we need to take that out altogether and obscure things. Do not fear their fear. What are, what are they afraid of in Isaiah 8? Man. Do not fear what man fears. What does man fear? He fears man. Do not fear their fear. Even though Peter has established these reasons why you don't need to fear man... The, fe- the soul of man cannot simply not fear. You cannot simply not fear. The soul was meant to run on fear as well as other emotions, but fear is one that's central to the soul operating in a healthy way. James Montgomery Boyce writes, Like everything else in creation, the human soul abhors a vacuum. When something essential disappears from our theology and our spirituality, something else rushes in to replace it. When God Himself disappears, what replaces Him is the self. And that works not only in terms of what you love. You're meant to love and esteem God above all others. You're also meant to fear God. And whenever the fear of God is absent, something's going to rush in to fill that fear of man. It's not just what you fear that reveals who your God is, what's supreme. And it's not just what you love that reveals what's supreme in your life. It's what you fear. It's what you revere. Now, in Isaiah 8, it was very clear that 
let God be your dread. That's implicitly here. But notice there, there it was said, hallow Yahweh your God. Honor him, uh, honor him as holy. More, more strictly translated, the, the Hebrew is hallow him. Hallow Yahweh. And likewise here, that's the better translation. Hallow Christ, the Lord. Hallow him. Have him set apart. Have him set supreme. Have him set transcendent above all. And the idea in that is he's to be... He's to be set apart. He's holy. He's other. Hallow Him in this regard. And that involves awe. That involves reverence. That involves fear. Edward Welch writes, Fear of man is always part of a triad that includes unbelief and disobedience. Fear of man, underlying fear of man, is unbelief that God is God. That Jesus is God. Whenever you fear man, you're not hallowing Christ the Lord. He isn't hallowed. He isn't esteemed properly. You were made to be in awe. You're going to be in awe. You're going to be, fear is going to be a driving force in your life. If it's fear of man, you're in bondage. If it's fear of God, you're free. Paradoxically, we find peace in fear. But only in the fear of the Lord. In reverence of Yahweh, we find our deepest rejoicing. The soul not only longs for gentle, cool, refreshing breezes, but from a place of clung to safety to behold the gale of the hurricane. There's something in us that longs to be in awe. And we have so many cheap substitutes. You were made to fear. You were made to not just to enjoy the shallows of the ocean, but from a place of clung to and joyful safety to behold its might and marvel at its strength. So what Peter is putting forth here is a fear to swallow all other fears. Thomas Watson writes, The fear of God destroys the fear of man. The three children feared God, therefore they feared not the king's wrath. The greater noise drowns the less. The noise of thunder drowns the noise of a river. So when the fear of God is supreme in the soul, it drowns all other carnal fear. It makes God to be God to us when we have a holy filial fear of Him. The church today is full of all kinds of wrong fear because she's void of the right kind of fear. She is displaying a kind of fear of man in acquiescing and bowing in so many ways and displaying a lack of fear and reverence towards God. For our peace of soul, we don't need so much more medicine We need more majesty to put us in awe and fear. We don't need medicine so much to decrease anxieties. We need a side of majesty to increase our reverence. And with this stance in life, not fearing man and hallowing Christ as Lord in our hearts, we're then prepared to make a defense being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. This is the 
classicus locus, the classic location, the go-to place, the preeminent text uh, for apologist, for apologetics. Apologetics is the art of defending the faith. It, the word gets its, we get the word apology or apologetics from this word that you have as defense. Uh, you may be familiar with apologists like Francis Schaeffer, Ravi Zacharias, uh, James White. They always seem to have the right answers. And they make a, a defense for the faith, for why we believe. And that's to be admired, but you need to realize that what's called for here is not something, it's not a task for the elite. This isn't a task that requires the elite. If you simply treasure the blessed gospel truths that Peter's been putting forward in this letter, if you simply love those and thank God for them and meditate upon them and appreciate them and they get into your lifeblood, if you do that, you can make a defense. If you know you've been born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you know that you have an imperishable inheritance. If you know that Jesus ransomed you by His precious blood. If you know that you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. If you know that you are called out of darkness to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His glorious light. If you know that... That generally, if you're zealous for good, no harm will come to you. If you know that even if harm does come to you, you'll only be blessed for it if it's for righteousness sake. If you know these things, if you really know them, it's quite easy to give a defense. The truths that Peter has laid out here lead to fearlessness. And if you display that kind of fearlessness, people are going to ask a reason for the hope that is in you. And if these truths are so substantial that they've led to that kind of fearlessness, they're so substantial that it's easy for you to give a defense for them. You want to live here, Christian. You want to live here, saint. You want these things to be so substantial to you that it's easy to give a defense so that you're fearless. And if you're not able to, if you're not able to do this, this is the explanation. It just doesn't mean that much to you. You won't be fearless. You will bow before men. You will cower. This doesn't require a great intellect. This isn't about winning arguments. This isn't about pride of one upping the other intellectually. Some souls are gifted in this way. Thank God for them. They're a gift to the church. But the best Christian apologetic flows from a heart that hallows Christ as holy and simply gives a reason for the hope that's in them. Fearless of man, fearful of God, we're, we're to be prepared to make a defense. But whenever we do so, it's to be with gentleness and respect. Now, is that concerning our attitude towards man? Is it concerning our attitude towards God? Humble, reverent. Or is it concerning our attitude first to man and then to God? Gentle towards man, respectful to God. That we should behave in this way to our adversaries, to our enemies, to those who revile and persecute us, is clear by Peter's call earlier, 2.17, to honor everyone, or 2 Timothy 2. 
The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently, enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So that, that is true. And so Spurgeon is wise whenever he advises. Try to avoid debating with people. State your opinion and let them state theirs. If you see that a stick is crooked and you want people to see how crooked it is, lay a straight rod down beside it. That will be quite enough. But if you are drawn into controversy, use very hard arguments and very soft words. Frequently, you cannot convince a man by tugging at his reason, but if you can persuade him by winning his affections, but you can persuade him by winning his affections. The other day I had the misery to need a new pair of boots. And though I bade the fellow make them as large as canoes, I had to labor fearfully to get them on. With a pair of boot hooks I toiled like the men on board the vessel with Jonah, but all in vain. Just then my friend put in my way a little French chalk, and the work was done in a moment. Wonderfully coaxing was that French chalk. Gentlemen, always carry a little French chalk with you into society. A neat packet of Christian persuasiveness, and you will soon discover the virtues of it. Now, if that's true, if this is all very true, we, we should treat our adversaries, our opponents in this way. If that's true, what, why do I have these concerns? Why am I asking this question? Well, because the word that you have respect is the word that we've talked about has been translated respect here, and it shouldn't have been translated respect so many times. Same word. Peter has just told you not to fear them, and now he's telling you, same word, fear them. No, that isn't directed towards man. It's the same word that in every instance in this letter is to be directed towards God. Again and again, Peter says, don't fear man, fear God. He told us 117 to conduct ourselves with fear if we call on God as Father. While we're told to honor the emperor, 217, we're to fear God. The better translation of 218 tells us that slaves with all fear are to be subject to their lords. Slaves with all fear, the, the, with all fear comes first, so you're more naturally inclined to take that backwards to God. He's, to, he's worthy of all fear rather than forward to lords. That's, this explains why Peter would speak of wives' respectful conduct, their same word, fearful conduct. To, but, but then he tells them in 3.6 not to fear anything that is frightening because one of these is directed towards man and one of those is directed towards God. And Peter is again here combining a set of attributes or attitudes, one directed towards God, one directed towards man. Be gentle towards man, be reverent towards God, fearful of God. He's done this again and again. Honor the emperor, fear God, 2.17. Slaves are to, with all fear of God, submit to their early, earthly masters, 2.18. Wives are submit to their husbands, showing reverence towards God, 2.18. Uh, and so uh, they're to do good, 3.9, and not fear anything that is frightening. So you're warned here, whenever you defend the faith, do it. Don't, don't do it in such a way, one, that you're not fearful of God, and two, that you're without kindness to men. And these go together. Whenever you're arrogant towards man, you are not properly fearing and revering God. Whenever defending the faith, pride is all too easy to creep in. You didn't discover these things on your own. They were graciously revealed to you. 
It's God who chose us. It's the, Spirit, uh, the, the Son who purchased us. It's the Spirit who sanctifies us. And we need not forget that whenever we're defending the faith as though we came into the knowledge and, 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 and uh, living according to these things all on our own. And this correlates to what is meant by having a good conscience. If your defense is pride-filled and reverence-void, you cannot have a clear conscience. You might be slandered for good, so you might have been doing something good, and then you might display a hope. You have this fearlessness of man. You might display that, that hope that causes them to ask about it, but then you add sin to it in your defense. It's done arrogantly. It's done with pride. Peter's ambition here is not simply that you suffer for good, but that whenever you suffer for good, you suffer good. You suffer in a way that's good. It's not only that you suffer for righteousness, but that whenever you suffer for righteousness, you suffer righteously. Suffer for righteousness righteously. Follow through on your shots. Begin with righteousness and carry through. Why is Peter so concerned that we suffer righteously? Verse 16. Have, uh, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Does that answer alarm you? So that they will be put to shame. Effeminate evangelicals like the with gentleness part. But they, they chop away at any kind of substance, at any kind of strength that underlies the power to display that kind of gentleness. Why would Peter want to shame them? Is, he, is wishing your adversary to be shamed, is that good? Is that kind? Is that genuinely seeking their good? Well, if you look elsewhere in the letter, whenever Peter's speaking in this way, what, he, what his ultimate aim in this is clear. So in 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, on the day of His judgment, on the day of His wrath, whenever Jesus is vindicated and we stand with Him such that His vindication is ours, our vindication is His, all glory ultimately going to Christ and their eyes are open that their ridicule of us was ridiculous. Christ will be glorified. They will be shamed. This is the way things will play out, and we shouldn't be ashamed of that. We should long for it. We should rejoice in it. They will be shamed. In 4 or 5, Peter says that those who malign us will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter's supreme desire is that God would be glorified in these exiles. And so the Gentiles who disobey the word as they were destined to do, 2 8, whenever those Gentiles don't repent, Whenever they reject the cornerstone and they stone the prophets, whenever they do this, nothing's malfunctioned. It'll still work to, on the last day, all glory being given to Christ, either by salvation or by judgment. And Peter's aim is that you will so behave that, mag that, that God has been glorified in you. God has been glorified through you. He's been made much of by your actions. That's the end. That's the way things are going, and so live according to that end. And if this language bothers you, you simply cannot worship God the way He's told you to. If this kind of language bothers you, you can't pray the way God has instructed you. Psalm 6, 9-10 through 10, Yahweh has heard my plea. Yahweh accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. 
Psalm 35.4, let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Psalm 35.26, let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Psalm 40.14, let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Psalm 44.7, but if you saved us, you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. Psalm 53.5, there they are in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Psalm 57.3, he will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. Psalm 71.13, may my accusers be put to shame and consumed. With scorn and disgrace may they be covered who seek my hurt. Psalm 129.5, may all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. We sing and we pray this way because whenever we are persecuted for righteousness sake, it's ultimately our Lord who is hated and reviled. And what we long for supremely is for Him to be glorified and seen for who He is. This isn't personal. This is about our zeal for good. This is about our zeal. And the chief good is the magnifying and the praising and the rejoicing in Christ our Lord. Our enemies are enemies because they are His enemies. Psalm seventy-eight, sixty-six. He put His adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. May all idolaters and all idols be put to shame. And may the name of Christ be lifted high and supreme above all. Psalm 97.7, all worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship Him, all you gods. If you can't sing and pray in that way, you can't live fearless of men. And that means you can't truly love them. Whenever, whenever you're afraid of man, they're determining the agenda. And what is good, what's best for them, isn't what's being sought. It's all about love of self. Whenever you're afraid of man, you're loving self. Whenever you're fearful of God, then you're free to love man. And not until then. And you have to see the way things play out to be liberated from that freedom. And you have to see that it's good. Give a defense. Give a defense praying that God would grant them repentance. Absolutely. And there's a kind of sadness whenever that's not granted. But remember, that's not your ultimate aim in giving the defense. Your ultimate aim is the glory of God. And they can't stop that. And whenever they try, they only add to your blessing for having tried to do so. And Peter follows with what is to be an explanatory sentence in verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And what does that add except to make things plain and uh, state them again? Well, first, let's not undervalue the wealth that comes to us, and Peter simply saying it again and making it plain. We need to be reminded again and again. But there is an added element here. It's, it's, uh, it's one that's throughout the letter. We've seen it already, but it hasn't been mentioned recently. It's better to suffer for doing good if 
that should be God's will. In chapter 1 and verse 6, Peter spoke of being grieved by various trials, if necessary. Well, who determines that they're necessary? The God who wills it. Chapter 4, verse 19, Peter will repeat himself yet again graciously. And tell us, therefore, let him who suffer, let, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Whenever suffering happens, it's planned and designed by our Lord. Often it'll be for our chastisement, for our growth in holiness. But what Peter is at pains to press upon us is this whenever you suffer, Let it be for good. Let it be for righteousness. When you suffer, make it count. As Peter's already told you, 2.20, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is grace in the sight of God. In Acts chapter 26, we see Paul making a defense, very same word, an apology for the faith. And he opens, he's making this defense before King Agrippa, the governor, uh, Felix is there as well. And Paul opens by saying, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Do you see him honoring The governor, he's respectful, he's gentle. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning uh, among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope. He's giving a defense for the hope that's in him. My hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? And then Paul goes on to, to speak of his conversion and his commissioning. To preach the gospel to the Gentiles. But you're, you're not understanding things correctly if you think Paul's just giving his testimony. He's making a defense, and he's making a defense of the resurrected Christ. That's the point. He's not wanting to tell them about me. That's not the reason for my hope. Listen what I did. The reason for my hope is the resurrected Christ. And so he's preaching Christ. And I said Felix. Felix was earlier. The the governor Festus says with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. And Paul replied, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. King Agrippa answered with a question. 
In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul responds, Whether short or long, I would to God, that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. And then we read this. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with him, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. That's what we can expect. There's a kind of ridicule, a mockery, a persecution, and a suffering, and yet, if we're zealous for what is good, what harm can come to us? And if it does, oh, the blessings. And because of behavior like this, Paul could say earlier in the, in the previous trial to the governor Felix, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience before God and man. That's the kind of fruit of the fearlessness and the fearfulness that Peter is calling us to in this text. Cultivate that kind of reverence and that kind of fearlessness and you'll be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you with a good conscience. This is how we should stand in the dock. Whenever we're called to an account before men, stand in this way. Fearless of men, fearful of God, knowing that ultimately, before the judge, you stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And it will be those who reject Him who are shamed. And those who stand in Christ because of all He is for us, who are glorified. They will come into an eternal doom, but us into an imperishable inheritance. Do not fear them. Fear your God. Fear your Savior. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank You for the liberating freedom there is in Christ. May we embrace fear and reverence towards Him and find the peace that comes there. May we be bold in our defense of this blessed gospel that is our hope. May it be precious to us so that that's natural. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen.